Blog Talk Radio. The following program is brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Hi, my name's John Carousella, and I'm your host for Convergence on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Convergence is to consciousness as gravity is to the material world. In small amounts, gravity is overwhelmed by every other fundamental force of the universe. But gravity has something nothing else has. It's cumulative. The more matter you collect, the more gravity you get, until it becomes the most powerful force of the material world. I think convergence is like that, too. Only in this case, we're working with truth. The more truth we collect, the more convergence we experience. Connections, relationships, resonance of ideas and concepts, science and mysticism. Lately, deep truths just seem to be coming together, even as many of the illusions around us are falling apart. As within, so without. As above, so below. I know I'm feeling it, and I'll bet you are too. For the next 90 minutes, we'll be exploring concepts and topics that in some way or another bring us around to a deeper truth. Join me and my guests for this week's experience of Convergence. Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carousella. I was at Ecstatic Dance, Silicon Valley hosted and DJed by my friend and colleague Wendy Dando this past Sunday. I had a really aggressive hike on the prior Thursday and a variety of stresses in my life over the past two weeks, so I was really looking forward to a deep dive. One of the things I find myself doing at Ecstatic Dance, especially lately, is Qigong. And in particular, for reasons I'm not consciously aware of, doing deep Kwa work. What is the Kwa? It's technically the joint between the femur and the pelvis. But it's more than that. It's really the whole lower bowl of the pelvis, I think, with the focus on all the connective tissue that binds the spine, the pelvis, and the legs together. Now, for most of us in the West, we don't have a very clear relationship with this part of our bodies. It feels very simple and coldly mechanical. Legs are for walking, butts are for sitting on, and that's about it. But I've been drawn deep into exploration of all the subtle mechanics of this part of my body, and it turns out there are so many connections and so many muscles that guide and manage and control all those connections. It's like a jungle in there. Now, we don't typically have control over or even sense all these connections because of the way we live. But students of Qigong and Tai Chi do get to explore these connections. And if you've ever gone to a hip opener yoga class, you may have a sense of what I'm talking about. But the real eye opener for me, the real awakening to the latent power of the qua, was when I recognized the difference between my qua and, say, the qua of a mountain lion. Think of a big cat, or even your average outdoor house cat. Think of the way they move, and take a focus on their haunches. The fluidity, flexibility, and strength of these animals goes all the way to 
and through their core and loins. The power to sprint and turn on a dime, to accelerate to top speed from a crouch, to eviscerate prey with the claws of their hind legs. All this power comes from the qua. So what's the qua good for in a human, in particular in this human? Well, for starters, it's great to have flexibility in the qua if you want to dance smoothly. I think a lot of salsa dancing requires movement and flexibility in the hips and sacrum. That kind of wiggly swirling that looks so sensuous it comes from the qua. Okay, so salsa dancing, but what else? Well, it turns out we have two diaphragms that impact our ability to sing. We have the main one below our lungs, more or less connected with our solar plexus. And we also have another one in our perineum, the pelvic floor. What's that, you say? A diaphragm in the pelvic floor? For most of us, that's hard to imagine, much less experience. But it turns out that there's a lot of musculature and connective tissue not directly associated with our bowels, bladder, or sex down there, but rather associated with our stability and strength and power. It's the first vertex of our ambulation. It's the point where the rays that are our legs come together. It's a dynamic fulcrum of both our forward motion and our balance. It's the place that supports our center of gravity. And it's where we ground. It's where we feel the solidity of Mother Earth in our bodies. And it moves. It flexes and expands and torsions and gimbals and slides. The more closely we give our attention to it, the more mobility and flexibility we discover. I've been drawn into doing these really deep squats. It's so strange. I can remember stories of folks talking about their weird old grandpa farmer who was spry and tough as nails into his 80s and who was always doing these squats, and it was the squats to which he would attribute his strength and health. And I remember doing squats in gym class in school. It never made any sense to me. All that pressure on the knees and straining the thighs. What was the point? It turns out I wasn't really doing a squat properly. To really get mileage out of a squat, you have to lever your thighs into your hips and butt and groin and drive the motion literally from your loins. The, the flexion, the power, originates deep in your qua. Your thighs, quadriceps really, simply come along for the ride, providing balance and compensating cooperative lift. Let me tell you, that's a completely different exercise. And over time, the sense of stability and groundedness and strength that I've come to experience is really amazing. Okay, sorry, somehow I got distracted. I was talking about the pelvic floor as a diaphragm. It expands, if you'll allow it, when you breathe. It can relax and allow your viscera to drop and shift as you take deep breaths. It can help pull even more air into your lungs. And as my son related from his voice coach, to sing well, you got to have a sloppy gooch. <laughs> a sloppy gooch. I love that phrase. you got to let that part of your body relax and flex and flow with the energy of your breath and the energy of the song. So understanding the qua or the gooch 
adds interesting and powerful leverage to the voice, too. You can be more expressive, more empowered, and more present to the capacity of your body to breathe and express itself, both in dance and song, if you understand and exercise your qua. Becoming intimate with this area of my body has been an unfolding process. I've been at it for a few months now, in this deep kind of way. But it actually started back when we were hosting Qigong classes at the Firefly Willows Healing Arts Center. My teacher, Meg McDonald, told me about this V that existed in the body, formed by the legs and the loins. She had me shift my weight from one leg to the other, filling and emptying each leg with weight, very slowly, side to side. And she asked me to put my attention not so much on my legs, but on my qua and what was happening there. It was my first introduction to the incredibly complex and incredibly cramped set of geometry that was hiding there. You know, it's it's like a seized engine, lots of moving parts that are all stuck. Fortunately, we're biology, not metallurgy, and that which is seized can become unseized without a cutting torch. So I started exploring and discovering, flexing and strengthening. I can remember a few short years ago mentioning to my friend Joe that as a 50-plus-year-old, I would know that I was back physically when I could get down in a three-point stance and bolt off the line of scrimmage in a sprint without hurting myself or cramping a muscle. I loved playing football as a kid. I was a pretty agile guy, quick, fast, and strong. I was a great linebacker. I loved sprinting off the line and beating the other kid to the ball carrier or to the open space, setting a good foundation for a really solid open field tackle, driving from my qua. Well, I didn't know it at the time, but I can feel the memory of it now. Driving from my qua into the oncoming halfback, dropping him to the ground with a solid thunk. I was also pretty quick and agile as a running back myself. Fast reflexes and the ability to fake left and run right or vice versa. Balanced, deep in my qua, legs solid and powerful, fully charged and able to go anywhere, to cut to the open space with power and momentum. I could go left or right with equal power, grace, and quickness. See, the qua is not a monolith. It flexes differently if you lean left than if you lean right. It moves and flexes in three dimensions, elongating in the axis of your motion if you're loose enough. Which brings me back to ecstatic dance last Sunday. I was exercising my deep qua, breathing, flexing, squatting, and moving powerfully to the music, as if I was coming off that line of scrimmage in slow motion as a dance, as a collection of self-invented yoga moves, and arcing back and forth, exercising the motion, going left and going right, experiencing the symmetry. Except, it wasn't symmetric. I discovered something surprising. I was much more comfortable going left than I was going right. Now, for a right-handed person, I was very surprised by this. And very quickly, I got connected to a series of realizations that took me by surprise. I was more comfortable going left because I have been, for the last 
oh, maybe ten years, living my life on defense. The right is my sword hand, my direction of action. The left is my shield hand, the direction of protection. I've been protecting, covering, and, in effect, retreating for about ten years now. It seems for every motion going right, trying to extend my influence in the world, create something new, or explore new terrain, I think I was probably making three, maybe more, moves left, protecting my existing realm, terrain, resources, and so on. Perhaps that's not surprising. I was in my 40s mostly, consolidating my career gains, raising teenagers, tending to a house and a long marriage. But I was also retreating, getting wounded more often, playing out of sync with myself, and therefore not able to press forward. I was getting tired, and I was playing for time. The truth is, I wanted to get off the field. A lot has changed since then. I've been off the field for a bit, and my convalescence has been going well. I've learned a lot about my qua and being grounded, and holding my energy and power in new and healthier ways. I've embraced receptivity in the Divine Feminine. I am understanding how to feel, to feel deeply, to remain present to my senses, to live in the terrain of my experience rather than the map of my expectations and will. I will continue to do so. I'll continue to be sensitive and responsive to my environment. I'll continue to cultivate my capacity to feel. But there's more to me than that. I think it's about time I got out on the field again and hunkered down to that line of scrimmage. I think it's about time, again, for me to start going to my right. We'll be right back. At Firefly Willows L-I-V-E... We're working hard to be your trusted source for fun, enlightening, and heart-centered information and community. And we're passionate about the art of transformative media, the new leading edge of communication in our highly connected, media-rich world. If you're passionate about facilitating change and you have gifts or ideas you'd like to share, come join us, host a show, or be a guest, or connect us to an amazing speaker or teacher whose message is too good to miss. There's always room for courageous, knowledgeable changemakers, inspired artists, and new ideas. Let us know you're interested. Send an email to info at fireflywillows.com. We're Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E, helping you find and shine your inner light. Welcome back. This is Convergence. I'm your host, John Carasella, and for today's Spirited Conversation, we are on location in Emeryville, California, visiting with Heather Ash Amara. Heather Ash is the founder of TOSI, the Toltec Center of Creative Intent, based in Austin, Texas, that supports authenticity, awareness, and awakening. She is dedicated to inspiring depth, creativity, and joy by sharing the most potent tools from a variety of world traditions. Heather Ash studied and taught extensively with Don Miguel Ruiz, author of The Four Agreements, and continues to teach with the Ruiz family. Raised in Southeast Asia, Heather Ash has traveled the world from childhood and is continually inspired by the diversity and beauty of human expression and experience. She brings this open-hearted, inclusive worldview to her writings and teachings, which are a blend of Toltec wisdom, European shamanism, Buddhism, and Native American ceremony. She is the author of The Toltec Path of Transformation. Welcome, Heather Ash. 
Thanks so much, John. It's it's really fun to to meet you. Um, I am a big fan of Don Miguel Ruiz and the Four Agreements. I have devoured the teachings in that book. And it, it really is kind of a go-to book for me and for everybody. It's on my recommended shelf, you know, for anybody who pops in and they have a question or they're struggling with something. One of the first things that comes to my mind is the Four Agreements. How did you find Don Miguel Ruiz? How did you stumble into that opportunity? I actually had a dream about Miguel. I had been studying with another teacher who was finishing up an apprenticeship program and had a dream that this majorly powerful, incredible shaman was going to show up in my life. And my brain went, right, where am I going to meet this human? I live in Davis, California, which at the time was a very small little town. And a week later, a friend of mine came into the office and said, oh, my God, you have to meet this man. <laughs> and my whole body went, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. And a year later, it took me a year. And a year later, I met Miguel. And just walking in the room and feeling the community and the love and the excitement and the dedication of the people that were there totally inspired me. And then Miguel himself is such a love bomb. Yeah. It was um, a, an immediate yes. Wow, that's great. Well, I, you know, we exchanged some emails in setting up today's interview, and there was a signature line on the bottom of your email. We can spend our lives attempting to avoid messes or roll up our sleeves with a giggle and consciously wade on into the heart of the matter. And I read that and I thought, now there's some very deep wisdom. <laughs> Where did that come from? <laughs> And that came from my book that's called The Pixie Solution. And I read, I wrote that book. I did a process where a group of us did A Year to Live. We read Stephen Levine's book. Oh. Beautiful book. And we all, every month we would meet and we would talk about this is our last, you know, now we've got seven months to live. What are you going to do? Oh, my gosh. And one of the things for me was I wanted to write a book of just downloading what what I felt really passionate about. And that's where that quote came from. With that book, Pixie Solutions. I think that's fantastic. And and this discipline, this this year to live discipline exercise, where did well, that sounds really fascinating? Tell oh, me a little bit more amazing. about that. Amazing. Stephen Levine works a lot with hospice, and from working with people that were dying, he had that brainstorm one day for himself. I mean, he'd been working with people that were dying for twenty twenty or twenty five years. He had a brainstorm for himself. Well, what if I lived the next year as if I was going to die? What would I do differently? What would I change? And as he did it, he also wrote a book. So it became a manual for a lot of people to walk that path. And that's some something that's really important in the Toltec path is really using death as an advisor. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I share with people who sometimes find it a little shocking and a little weird, but death has been a really powerful advisor for me. Uh, starting in about, like in 2009, suddenly death became very present. Wow. You know, not some physical deaths, some, you know, deaths in my family and so on and so forth, but way more potently as a spiritual advisor, you know, hanging out on my left shoulder, yes. just keeping me attuned. And, and I learned so much about how death does its work and how extraordinarily sophisticated and elegant death is as a function and as a spirit. It's it's uh it's very cool. It's very it's interesting. Very, yes, and people don't are like, why would you put your attention there? Yeah, that, yeah, but exactly. But it it's really about embracing life. If you can really embrace death, then you can turn around and really embrace life. I think that's a hard thing for people to understand intellectually. Or, well, no, actually, maybe it's it might be easy for people to understand intellectually, but it's hard to 
to really get it until you get it. Yes. And the the feeling of the power that comes from understanding death as a part of reality means that you can understand life as part of reality in a new way. Yeah, and as part of the cycle. Uh, yeah, because it's all a cycle. It's all a cycle. It's very, very interesting. So in reading your your book, The Toltec Path of Transformation, I was interested to see how you brought the teachings of Don Miguel Ruiz into this, into this, into your story. And you really bring your focus to the four elements. Tell us a little bit about that. When I was studying with Miguel, one of the things that I noticed is that many of us had a lot of energy and a lot of desire and a lot of drive. And we would go to make changes. And what I noticed is that we would set some changes into motion, and then a little bit later we'd fall back in to do the same pattern. Mm -hmm. And that happened over and over again. I watched that in myself, I watched that in my peers, I watched that in my students. So I went, okay, what is this? And I started to really explore it and had immersed myself deeply in the Four Agreements and also come from a background of European shamanism where the cycles are very, very important and working with the elements are very important. And many, many traditions around the world work with the elements, air, fire, water, earth. So what I recognized is that when we go to make change, we're going against a structure we've set up. And that structure is designed to keep us safe. Mm. So we all create these structures of who I am, who I'm supposed to be. And, and this is this is where the four agreements, where, where the notion of the agreements that we make exactly. comes in, is the yeah. structure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so we make all these agreements. And the four agreements is beautiful because if you follow them, it'll break all your old agreements. Right. So... And then, and it's still challenging. It's not easy. And what I recognized is that if you don't have another container to hold you while you're breaking your agreements, then it's really easy to just put them back in place. Because mm-hmm. you can imagine you've been standing on a structure that you've built that works. Right. And then you go, I have a great idea. I'm going to start taking it apart. And you start pulling it apart. Uh, suddenly your world gets really wobbly. Mm. So that was the, the, the feeling sense was then, well, if we put a new structure in place, and the four agreements are definitely new structures, and the elements are new structures as well. And what I what I felt into is what would be the biggest structure that we could use. And the four elements are really the building blocks of life. Because mm. without one of those elements, there would be no life. So we... we pretty fundamental to who we are pretty then. Pretty fundamental to who we are. And they, they also are connected to different parts of ourselves: Our mind, our emotional body, our energetic body, and our physical body. And so that gets woven in as well. And we bring all the parts of ourselves together rather than trying to just fix the mind but ignore the emotional body mm. or trying to make our physical body better without realizing that our mind is really messing with us around how right. it thinks our body should be. Right. So that's where I started to, to feel this sense of if we had a container that was of the four elements, and if you visualize a circle, and that in that circle there's four anchors of the elements, air, fire, water, earth. They represent the four parts of ourselves. And we're standing in the center with our structure, but if we bring our energy knowing that we're being held by something greater, we can then start pulling our old structure apart and using the inspiration of the elements to do so. So you're in the middle with your with your agreements that you've built that are functional but non-optimal. Yes, they and, worked up till now, but and now you set the container of the elements. And so what I guess the book helps people do is learn how to lean into the elements 
the elemental structures, the elemental strengths, as we're pulling apart the agreements that we know that no longer serve us. Yes, exactly. Excellent. And to use the energies of each of those elements. So, for example, sometimes change needs just the gentlest breeze to create transformation. And sometimes it needs a heavy wind. Hmm. Sometimes it's just a little candle flame that will create the transformation. And sometimes you need a forest fire. Right. And sometimes those things happen in our lives where suddenly there's the tsunami in our life. Right. And it's like, okay, well, there's one type of energy. And sometimes the change is really sweet, like a little gentle trickle. Mm. Well, you know, in your book, you use the phrase, imagining spring, the breeze feels like silk pajamas. <laughs> and I just thought that was such a, a a magical expression of the gentleness that's possible yes. from the elements. Right. We think of the elements as elemental forces, rah, you know, but there's an example of just the kiss that can be available, that kind of tenderness that can be available from the elements. Exactly. Exactly. And sometimes that's what creates the most change, not always the the push or the intensity or the bigness. Well, that that's interesting because you talked about the mental pressure that comes from a culture that is essentially empowered for and structured for instant gratification. The fact that we can pull out our cell phone and talk to somebody anywhere in the world instantly and all of the other things that in our culture that are geared towards empowering us to do what it is we want to do as quickly as possible. That this creates a mental pressure on the process of self-transformation. Share a little bit more about that. Absolutely. Now, I love cell phones. I love how fast everything's happening. So just to say, yay, technology. And there was a time when the Internet was created, like when the Internet was first created and email was first created. And I remember people going, oh, my God, this is going to be so great because it's going to save us so much time and we're going to have so much leisure time. What will we do with all our leisure time? And if you look at what's happened, it's that we now expect everything to happen instantaneously. We expect the text to come back. We expect the email to come back. We expect somebody to be able to call us back and that we're available all the time. And what that's translated to, I've noticed on our spiritual path, is that people now will come to me sometimes and go, okay, so how long is this going to take? So I'm enlightened. How long is this going to take till I get it? Right. How long was it till I really understand the four agreements? And, and there's a sense, too, of even on people that have been on the path for a long time saying, okay, well, it's been long enough. When is this going to be done? And there's that sense of, of internal pressure that we create for ourselves around our own transformation. When transformation takes whatever it takes, sometimes it's incredibly rapid. And some of the tools that Miguel and the Toltec teach are move things much more quickly than they might go otherwise. And there's also things that are just take time and just cycle through. So that, that sense, again, of coming back to being with what is rather than what we think should be. Mm. Yeah, there was a time uh, when I made, I first started making homemade wine, right? And being, you know, this was when I was in high tech and uh, being a, a hard driver and compelled and pressured to be the best and so on and so forth. And I always felt, for, for the longest time in my life, I felt like there was nothing that I couldn't master pretty much instantly, right? If I just just give me the give me the layout uh, and, and I will be a, a quick study and yeah. I will master this very quickly. And it was only 
when I started making wine that I realized, you know, you can you can do everything right and you can do it very efficiently, but then you have to wait. <laughs> and there is no rushing that. And there's no rushing that. And rushing that is an exercise in futility and misaligned ego. Yeah, and it's damaging to the end result. So the question then becomes, how do we as as individuals who are seeking self-transformation for the purpose of having a better life, right? I mean, we're doing this for a reason. And so we want to get to that end goal as efficiently as possible. What do we take into ourselves in the process of engaging self-transformation that allows us to note the progress that we're making and celebrate it even as it's taking a long time? Yeah, and that's definitely the reframe, is the reframe is instead of looking at where we're trying to get to, is to come back and to really enjoy the process of it, every step of the, of the way, to cultivate patience, to cultivate humor, humor is so important, mm. that we can really laugh at ourselves, and the way our mind works, the way that we get ourselves entangled sometimes, the dramas that we create. If we can find a sense of humor, that really helps. And that place of really honoring the process, every part of the process, and opening to every part of the process. What does is, what is honoring the process do for you? What it does is it brings us back to being with what is rather than what we think should be. Ah, mm-hmm. So the difference in that is so huge. As, as Don Miguel talks about it, we create this image of perfection of who we think we should be. And for people on a spiritual path or a healing path, I sometimes say we doubly screw ourselves. Hmm. because we have the all that we were raised with who we think we should be, and then we take on the spiritual of who we should be, or if we were healed, this is what we should be like. Right. And it's usually, you know, if you think about a healed spiritual person, there's they're never angry, they're always calm, they're always loving, they're always completely present in every moment. Like there's all of these qualifications of what you should be when you're spiritual. <laughs> right. And so... It's it's not real, okay? It's not real. And so here we are judging ourselves, going, oh, no, I just got angry. I'm a bad spiritual person. And who's directing so much our transformation often is the judge. It's it's definitely not easy to come back to being with our process rather than being where we wish we were in our process. But I've seen that's what creates the most freedom. Hmm. So, okay, so now I want to go to fall. Uh, I'm going to skip summer for right now. So the, in the book, you describe the uh, the elements in the context of the seasonality as well, yes. right? Yes. So uh, spring is the air, and we're going to, we're going to touch on that again. Uh, fall, summer is the, is fire, and fall is water. Yes. But there was something that you wrote that I just found it so compelling. Fall, you you said something like. Just as the trees don't clutch onto their leaves for fear of being exposed, we can learn to surrender, to change. And that has such a powerful emotional content, payload, right? That we do fear being exposed. And it's in, and what is it about being exposed that creates so much fear? What is the nature of that, that being exposed would be so uncomfortable? Mm-hmm. 
it's it's really about the fear that if people aren't perceiving that image of perfection, that then we'll be abandoned, we'll be judged, we'll be... So in a way, this comes back to the judge. It does come back to the judge. The, this is the... So the judge um, is... Is the judge there in all four phases of... The judge the, the, seems to be... A, <laughs> in in most humans right now on the planet, the one of the biggest players is the judge. And and part of that is a victim. So those two go together. They're mm-hmm. really the same thing. It's what the Toltec call the parasite, which is the judge, the victim, and the book of law, which is all the agreements you've ever made. Right. Wow. Yeah. So those three things together is how we try and live our lives. Is there a way to extricate ourselves from the judge or to extricate ourselves from the, the hegemony of the judge, the overpower that the, the judge has? There's there's a lot of different ways. It's it's not a simple process. Hmm. I always hate saying that because people are like, okay, tell me how to get rid of my judge once and forever. <laughs> Give me the pill. It's like, sorry, it takes a while. It's way possible, though, as we begin to shift to witness. So that's what I found is that when we sometimes in the beginning of the process, it's really helpful to feel like you're going to battle against the judge because it gets your energy raised up. And it's like, OK, I've got an enemy. I've got something that I'm pushing against. And what I've seen is that that evolves then into really being able to love the judge and know the judge is doing the best it can and to be able to hold the energetic of that was good. You did that really well mm. and to not take it seriously anymore to not take it personally anymore. And so we take the power away from the judge. The judge might be doing whatever it's doing, but we're now putting our attention to witnessing what's happening rather than judging. And also to take the the best qualities out of the judge. So the judge healed, as I see it, is discernment. Uh The capacity to witness something and discern, "Mm, I like this, I don't like this. But not to say that's bad, that's good. Just this feels right for me. This doesn't feel right. And this that's, is an that, alignment. This is not an alignment. That's a very big, it's a big distinction. Discernment versus judging is a huge distinction. It's huge. And it's, you, all, you can tell by the energy behind it. Discernment has no... It has no judgment. It has no judgment. It's <laughs> just is, like, ah, oh, now I'll pick this. No, I won't pick that. And the judgment has a lot of story. Ah, okay. The judgment has a lot of story. And the story resides in our, our, I guess, our agreements? Our agreements, our experiences, yeah. And that those experiences and the agreements that we have are not necessarily true. So we tend to believe everything that our mind thinks, every story that the mind comes up with. And when we are able to start stepping back and witnessing the mind, we can go, wow, that's that's a lot of thinking. That's a lot of thinking about the past. That's a lot of thinking about the future. Our mind tends to do what I call disaster thinking. Yeah, the disaster mind. That was a very interesting and compelling concept. Yes. Yeah. I found that one from just studying my mind for a while. And so talk about that oh. a little bit more. Our minds are trying to keep us safe. That's how I see it. And how it tries to keep us safe is by looking at all the things that went wrong in the past and trying to avoid repeating the things that went wrong in the past. And then also projecting what might go wrong in the future. And then trying to avoid what could go wrong in the future. So our little minds are so busy. They're so, they just must be exhausted. Because mm. they're constantly looking at the past and filtering through and looking at the future. And for most of us, what, what our thoughts consist of is re, replaying things over and over again. I once realized this. I'm like, okay, I've told myself the same story 
40 times or so, who's listening and who's talking? Why wouldn't I just be able to say, this happened, period? Mm. Rather and, and than this happened, this happened, this happened, oh my God, and then this could have happened. Indeed, why not? Yeah. Why, why, why can't we? We get into ruts, we get into habits. So humans right now, tend, most humans right now tend to have a habit of trying to figure out their world through thinking. And if they mm. somehow, we somehow believe if I can just figure it out through thinking, then I can understand it. And if I understand it, then I know how to, what action to take next. But the world is not understandable. Humans are not understandable. I am fond of talking about this in terms of the map and the terrain, mm-hmm. right? The terrain is right here in front of us. Right. Now, yes. we don't have we don't have access to all of the terrain at all times. We do have access to the terrain that is in the here and now. Yes. In our immediate vicinity. And through the sorcery of technology, we have access to the terrain in lots of places. Yes. Right now. And yet we tend to live in the map. Right. We we consult the map all the time, hoping that the map will actually reveal something that the terrain is not revealing. Which, in a way, seems kind of silly because the terrain is actually where we are, exactly. and the it's map right is there. the map is the is the projection of uh, of what we think the terrain is telling us. Yes, and I think what we find is that the map is full of errors. Yes, and when we see an error in the map, we rationalize the error in the map and create a new thing in the map to explain the way that the map has led us astray instead of saying, oh. The map is wrong. Let me look at the terrain. And I think that, you know, this is one of the reasons why I like the four agreements so much is because there's all these hidden agreements which are errors in the map. Exactly. And and you, we have to actually do some serious surgery, right? It's 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 delicate surgery to find these these agreements, right? It is. It is. It takes a tremendous amount of awareness and willingness. One, willingness to be wrong. Willingness to admit there are errors in how we think and how we perceive. And and then willingness to go through the discomfort of changing them. So this discomfort, this ties back to something um, where you, you said earlier and in the book, you talked about you can make the change, but then it doesn't stick. And share a little bit more about what's the thing that dislocates us from the path that we have identified as the productive path. You know, we're, we're, we're working on it, right? We're working on it, and then suddenly we're not working on it anymore. <laughs> what comes to mind is my one of my first teachers, her father was a, a rocket scientist. Literally a rocket Literally scientist. Literally a rocket scientist. And what he told her at a young age was that heat-seeking missiles are off-target 99% of the time, over 99% of the time. Yeah, I know. That's the kind what? of... What? <laughs> because okay. they have a target, but what they do is they, they're they constantly correcting. Oh, So they're right. off course and then they correct. They off course, they're correct. They off course, they're correct. How I see us with change sometimes is that we're off course and we don't realize it. And sometimes we do things like we're off course for 10 years in the wrong marriage, not realizing that it's not serving us. And then we mm. go, course correct. And then we realize we've been in a career that's not really fulfilling us for the last three years, we course correct. And that as we become more aware, those course corrections happen more quickly because we're able to look at where we're going and look at where we're at. Look at where we're going, look at where we're at, and be really honest about where we're at. Now, if where we think we should be at is based on an image of perfection, 
and we're not really looking at where we're at, it's really hard to course correct because we're looking at where we want to go and then we're referring back to where we think we should be. And what then arises is judgment. I'm in the wrong place. I shouldn't be here. And the judgment keeps us off course. Mm. When we drop the judgment and come back to where am I actually, what's really happening for me right now, and where do I want to go? And we can learn to be where we are, look at where we want to go, be where, in acceptance of where we are now, look at where we want to go. Then we can course correct much more quickly. And this is where the mind becomes a real powerful asset, right? Because yes. the, the air element and the gift of the air element is clarity of thought. Exactly. It's deep awareness and clarity. And when we have that clarity, and clarity comes from accepting what is now. Not where we wish we were, but where we are actually are right now. And so when we, we can gain that clarity, then we're not operating out of judgment, which is really heavy and really sticky and Well, so there's two there's two actually two pieces to this. One is accepting where we are right now. The other is discerning where we are right now. Yes. Which is actually you know, almost harder. It is. And also there's a third assessing where we want to go. Because sometimes with, people have no, they don't know, they're not clear about what their intent is. They don't have the clarity of this is what I want. So when we have all three, acceptance of where we are, discerning where we are, and then clarity of where we're wanting to go, yes, then mm. we can really direct ourselves and course correct much more easily. And we can do that without the judge. And we can do it without the judge. In fact, the judge we, is then helping us. The judge is discerning. Mm, that doesn't feel quite right or that's not... It will actually help us course correct. What happens is the judge becomes the ally. The judge starts being the ally. The mind, your mind can be an amazing ally. If your mind is in clarity and awareness, it can help you to see when it's going off course. Okay, so this triggers something for me. I'm a big fan of the universe wastes nothing, right? Yes. And I have had enough opportunities, enough experiences in my life to, to realize that the wound becomes the gift. If you yes. can, if you can dispense with the judgment around it and release the suffering, the memory of suffering. Mm-hmm. How does the, you know, let's say you have a really powerful judge, right? Let's just pretend. Let's just pretend. <laughs> Cause, Cause I know somebody who does. <laughs> I have a friend who's a really big judge. <laughs> and, uh, when you, I, I'm just wondering, what is the character of the gift that comes from having cultivated through experience a very powerful judge once you stop once you suffering? Stop doing it. It's energy. It's energy. It's just energy. So everything is energy. And so if you, we can just go, wow, that's a big, powerful energy. Instead of going, that's a judge and the judge is bad. When we can take that energy and turn it into an ally, we have... So if you have a huge judge, you're going to have a huge ally if you, sh- if you shift the energy of it. And what's that ally good for, though? It's good for discerning. For it's discerning. good for helping you to navigate. So there's a part of the mind that is witnessing the mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like you're using a part of your mind as the tool to undo the rest of the mind that's not serving it. So okay. that mind can ascertain, is, is that agreement serving you or not serving you? Ah. Is that action serving you or not serving you? What's your intent? Are you clear about what your intent is? And there's no, you should be clear about your intent. Right, right. It's right. just. So there's the there's you, a discipline. Got your intent. There's a discipline. Yeah, the, and the discipline's a, out of love. Right. The difference is, the judge is out of fear. Mm-hmm. 
and the when the mind becomes the ally, it's out of love. It's out of uh, beauty. And it's then around helping each of us become the artist that we are and using everything, every thought, every experience. It doesn't mean that bad situations or difficult situations never arise again or that there's no that your mind suddenly goes completely blank. That would be lovely. And that happens sometimes where people, their mind just goes offline and they're in pure experience. For most of us, it's about witnessing what's arising and then using what's arising, being able to witness whatever the thought is and go, ah, there's a thought arising. Is it true or not? Where does it stem from? And we can start stalking it back to find what's the root. So so a powerful judge... A powerful judge becomes a powerful discerner that can be applied to really a whole collection of, it can accelerate your self-transformation. Hugely. Because you're very agile at examining your process because you have had a very strong judge judging everything that you did. Exactly. exactly. (laughs) But now instead of judging everything you do, it's capable of analyzing and discerning with love so that you can course correct faster. That is so true. Okay. Yes. Cool. That's a good, that's, there's hope. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Okay. So on that note, why don't we take a short break? And when we come back, I want to talk about gremlins. Perfect. (laughs) Okay. We'll be right back. You're listening to Convergence with host John Carousella on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Find out more at fireflywillows.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome back. This is Convergence. I'm your host, John Carousella, with my guest, Heather Ash Amara. Okay, so Heather, um, in your book, you talked about you, you talk about the the challenges that rise that arise with each of the elements as you're using them to build this your new structure or the structure that you know the the, the hangar that you're using to rebuild the plane while it's flying yeah <laughs> uh, and one of them is fire and one of the challenges with fire you call to our attention the notion of gremlins now you got to tell us what this is all about. <laughs> Um, the gremlins are the parts of us that pop up unexpectedly to sabotage. And the, the energy with fire is around cleaning. It's around cleaning the places that no longer serve us. So I, I like to think about the closet, that if you're really, really going to clean a closet out, you have to first go, one, you have to open the door, two, you have to be willing to pull everything out, and then choose what you want to put back in. It's not about rearranging the closet. It's about actually pulling everything out. And that's about questioning everything that you think. And in that process, I've noticed that there there are these little gremlins, I call them, that tend to pop up and distract us from what our work is. <laughs> is there is there a reason that, that there are gremlins with fire? I mean, is there, or is it just that's just the character that appeared to you? That was just the character okay. that appeared to me. So, so give us some examples fire. of these gremlins. So uh, examples of gremlin is when you're really dedicated to something and you're really excited about it and you're really working to clean something or to bring something new into your life and then you suddenly get really distracted, like there's something else that you really have to do right now. It's really important. Or where you find yourself getting really sleepy. Yeah, that one, that really 
caught me by surprise and it's like what's going on when 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 you're in the middle of a process and suddenly you just get sleepy what is that and it depends sometimes your body's just needing to reset yeah and if you if you notice this is what's so beautiful about really using the qualities of air and clarity is you get to know yourself for me this whole process is about becoming more intimate with ourselves mm. So in that intimacy, you might realize, wow, every time I'm about to make this next step, I suddenly then get really tired and have to sleep. Once or twice might not mean anything, but if you start to notice, wow, this is happening every time, what's happening is that that gremlin is appearing and distracting you through taking you out by going, oh, it's time to rest now. Just go rest. Now, but do these gremlins exist because they at one point served us? Absolutely. They they were protecting us from something. They were protecting us. Yeah. So if you can imagine a kid that maybe wanted was really excited and wanted to share something with their parents, and every time they got shut down and said, "No, we don't. That's not important," or "That's right. not too busy." Too busy. Come or, back later. Or whatever. It might be that 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 part of how they protected themselves is they decided to spend a lot more time by themselves, or that sleep was where they. Mm. were able to escape from maybe the chaos of the, uh, right. what was happening in the right. family. That was the one, one safe place. It's interesting because uh, newborn babies, when they are in the presence of too much stimulation, they will fall asleep. They will. So maybe that's a clue, too, is that too the body is pro- is protecting us from from an explosion of or a large expression of new of newness yes. that we fear we're not ready for. Yes. It can be. And so we we get to then ascertain, well, is it I'm not ready for it or it's just new and scary? Mm-hmm. And so we can learn to hold ourselves in a new way. Yeah. Yeah. And that that is so true about the, these little gremlins is that they're trying to keep us safe. And if we can just go, thank you so much. I know you're trying to keep me safe and, and I'm good. I'm going to keep going past whatever this distraction is. Then there might be a mo- there might be a little bit of discomfort. But once we move through the discomfort, then we can actually create change. Then we can actually clean up the old agreement. Mm. And fire is about the spiritual self or the energetic yes, body. it's around the energetic body. And so if our energies are, if we're not clean, our, our engine is not burning clean. Yes. So we have a lack of, what, power or? Yeah, we have a lack of power and a lack of often taking right action. Mm. When we're when we're our system is gunky, then we tend to expend a lot more energy than is necessary. So so with the with the mind we we judge we trap ourselves and judge ourselves with so so discernment is the gift of air. Um, with fire, the gift is cleansing so that we have more access to our energy. Yes. Water. You told a story in the book reflecting on openness of an event when you were down in Peru and Machu Picchu. Share a little bit about that. Yeah, it was a great, great lesson. I was with uh, Miguel and my friend Ginny Gentry, who was my teacher at the time, and then later she and I became really, really good friends and and started co-teaching together. So Ginny and Miguel together put me into silence. I had been teaching, and they were wanting to give me the opportunity to step back. Mm. So they put me into silence, and... It was great until a moment where Ginny decided she wanted me to do a big ritual. And my brain was like, but you put me in this. I just went into complete rebellion. Like something snapped. I went into the most 
incredibly intense rebellion that I'd felt in a really long time. And I remember watching myself going, wow, that's a lot of energy. It's a lot of pent up something that's coming out. (laughs) And I stormed off and it was pouring rain and I I decided to go climb Wainu Pichu, which is one of the really big peaks in Machu Picchu. And as I'm climbing it, I'm like going through, should I throw myself off the cliff? Should I go back and chew out Ginny? Should I just leave the tr- I mean, just so much garbage was in my head. I'm, part of me is witnessing. Wow, this is a lot of energy, Heather Ash. What's going on? And as I climbed, I realized I didn't have the energy to sustain myself, the amount of anger and frustration that was going on in my body and to climb. Mm. One of them had to go. Mm-hmm. And what happened is I just opened... I had this moment of just really opening to everything and just accepting everything, accepting the judgments, accepting the feeling of being victimized, accepting the anger, accepting all of it, and bringing my focus to what I was doing, which was climbing the mountain. And in that openness, everything just dissolved. Okay, so this is different from bringing your focus to your climbing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I want to I tease this out a little bit. Because we could, you could have in that moment just shut down right. all of that other stuff yes. and said, I'm going to climb this mountain. Sort of like diverted your attention away from what was disturbing you and distressing you and into your activity, which a lot of us do and a lot of us do productively. Yes. But that's not what you're talking about. Yeah. It is something different. And it was a, it was a big moment for me because I'm, I had been very adept at just compartmentalizing and shutting off, which doesn't create healing. Sometimes it's important to do that in our lives, and it doesn't heal the part we shut off. So this was an incredible experience of choosing, instead of compartmentalizing and shutting off and going, I'm not doing that anymore, of opening to all of it. Now, what did that feel like? What was the trepidation? Did you feel trepidation in the moment of choosing to open? The feeling was, if I opened, then I was... Part of what was keeping me closed, let's say that, what, what, what was keeping me closed was the feeling sense of Ginny's wrong, was I'm right, she's wrong, mm-hmm. and that I'm good, she's bad. That was, And I knew that wasn't true, but that part of me had gotten really activated. So that rebel part, it was, it was the surrendering of an old pattern. Which was the need to be right. Right, exactly. The need to be right and the need to be seen. Mm-hmm. Now, there, obviously, there's a happy ending to this story. Yes. But I know that I feel it, and I'm sure a lot of our audience feels it too, that there's some moment of existentialist fear of dissolving into nothing if you let go of, I need to be right, or I need to be seen. And how do you, you know, where do people typically feel that? How do, what, there's a, that's an impact on the body, and there's a, something that has to be overcome to pass through that. Can you characterize that or share what it was for you or who you've seen your students? There's a point where we become willing to go past where we've gone before. And it does feel like if I go past this point, I'm going to dissolve. I'm not going to be safe. I'm not going to be held. I'm going to be abandoned. Whatever the old structure that's keeping us some agreement has been structured to Some keep agreement. you, you know, beyond here, there there be dragons. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right? Do not pass this line. And there, there just becomes a point for all of us at some place where we go, I can go back to the old pattern or I can do something different. Mm-hmm. And I think that's grace. 
that we we cultivate that in ourselves by by cultivating willingness by cultivating trust in ourselves by really loving ourselves through those transitions and really learning to open to the little things so that when a big thing comes we've already practiced opening to what we don't like and that's what i really teach people is learn how to open to what you don't like even the little things like i don't like waiting in this line well can you open to waiting in line Mm. and all the small places and that then trains us so when a big thing comes our nature is to open rather than to close and in that opening we have more choice we have more possibility we have more creativity in what our next action will be because we're not constrained by resistance we're not constrained by the resistance and the closing always puts us back into an old agreement What's familiar? Does the closing ever serve to keep us safe? Uh, Absolutely. Conscious closing, which for me is opening to closing. Ah, okay. Very clever. (laughs) I know, very clever. (laughs) That that there is a place where we consciously say, I'm going to pull back. And it's not a, boom, I'm shutting down, the barriers are going up. It's, I need some space, I'm going to pull back. But we do that actually in a very open way. Mm. Um, I need space, or I need time, or I need... Ah, okay. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. You can feel the quality of the difference in that type of taking space. Very good. That's a lot of useful information. So, we're we're approaching the winter solstice, and uh, we haven't really talked much about Earth, uh, that, that fourth element, but it is that time of year. What can What can we say about rest and stillness and silence and and death that might be useful for folks right now. This is such an interesting part of the cycle. So winter is about really going within. And yet this time of year for most of us is about going way out. It's about Christmas, Hanukkah, parties, celebrating, solstice. And it's really important for us as humans, as part of the balance, to take some time to go within. So to really honor that there's a lot more darkness right now. And what I love doing in winter solstice is, around this time of winter, is waking up early in the mornings and just sitting in the darkness, not doing anything, but just letting myself just immerse in this part of the cycle of non-action, rest, quiet. Yeah, yeah. And so any little places that we can create that, even if it's five minutes, makes a huge difference to put us back in touch with the cycle. Right, so stealing five minutes not to do a hobby, not to make progress, not to express ourselves, but to be still. Yes, yes. And to to really, the trees are such great teachers in that way. So just by going outside and looking at a tree that's lost all its leaves and and just sitting with the energy of all the sap going to the roots in that place of rest, you can use... I love doing this with nature. You can use nature to remind, right, okay, pull my energy in. So this is a good time to to take space where you can find it. So like there that. might be things that you need to do, but are there things that you don't really have to do that you can cut back on some of the activities? Yeah, and the trees are great teachers in that regard. They are. Well, that's great. Yes. Fantastic. So we're almost out of time, and I have to say that I've, I would love to talk with you for another hour or so because it's because this work is just really it's really grounded and and uh, chewy you know it's not it's not so esoteric that you can't actually get in there and uh, you know 
roll up your sleeves and giggle and, and wade into the mess and start working on it. And yeah. I really like that. Yeah. Um, so is there anything that you want to share with uh, our audience before we go? To take little bitty steps. So for me, all spiritual healing work is around making it practical for you. So for each of us to really cultivate self-intimacy, be willing to listen to oneself in a totally different way than you have in the past, and take little bitty steps. So don't expect yourself to go from where you are now to where you want to be instantaneously, because that just sets us up for suffering. But to really enjoy every step and go and celebrate. What I love doing is you take a little step and then you celebrate. Oh, my God, woohoo, I did so good. And then you're motivated to take the next step and the next step. Well, I think, you know, in the book you said we are, we humans are incredible creators. We are. And we have the opportunity to create success to create celebration, to create an acknowledgement of progress all the time, right? Yes. And so we should, t- so why not take advantage of that? Yeah, yeah. To, Great. To capture our own attention and choose where we want to put our energy. Excellent. Okay, so if folks want to learn more about you and your work or get in touch with you, what's the best way for folks to get to We you? have a fabulous website. It's toasty.org, and there's a lot of articles, videos, and different events that we do Global. We do a lot of long-distance programs as well as we have many, many offerings in our uh, center in Austin, where Great. I'm based out of right now. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. And we'll have that information for you on the website. So with that, I want to thank you, Heather Ashamara, for a fantastic opportunity to share uh, your wisdom, and uh, hopefully we'll have a chance to talk again. Thanks so much, John. A personal tarot reading can offer you insight, information, enlightenment, and empowerment along your life's path. High C is a professional Tarot conversationalist and ritualist with over 10 years' experience. He's available for readings in a variety of formats, including parties and events. To schedule your personal Tarot reading, contact High C at tarotbyhighc.net or email him at hic at fireflywillows.com. Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carousella. I was doing some gentle journey work the other day, really just settling in and enjoying the afternoon as it faded into evening, looking out over the valley in Pacifica, feeling very at home and supported by Mother Earth. It was a beautiful, warm day, especially considering it was January. I don't know why or how exactly, but being so intimate with the moment and my surroundings, I began to connect deeply with the valley, and not just in front of me, but to my left, and to my right, and behind me as well. I began to sink in to my one tiny spot on the planet, and feel out in all directions. You know, we often call in the directions when we do ceremony. I've done it hundreds of times myself. Sometimes, in ceremony, we have very specific words for the spirits that come to us from each direction. Sometimes, as in Wicca, we have more or less agreed-upon attributes that we invoke with each direction. But sometimes, we can feel them in a very intimate, personal way. Like this day, sitting out overlooking the valley in Pacifica. I touched in with all the directions. I wondered what made south, south, and west, west, after a while. You know, the further away from me I project, 
the harder it is to have an established line between them. They merge way out there. Even east and west merge on the other side of the planet. When I look west from Pacifica, my gaze arrives ultimately on the east, the Orient. So, am I gazing upon the west? Or the east? It was a fascinating little exercise, and I had a rather jolly time connecting with the directions as mystical friends rather than locations from which something or someone might emanate. As I sat, the sun passed behind the ridge, and the longer I sat, the dimmer the sky became, and I began to see stars. A few nights prior, I'd had the wonderful opportunity to watch both Mercury and Venus set just after the sun. These nights in January, all five visible planets are in the night sky. Mercury and Venus just after sunset in the west. Mars higher in the sky at sunset, but still also in the west. And Jupiter in the east at sunset, and Saturn, late to rise, shows up in the east before dawn. I contemplated the great cosmic machinery that was the heavens. The sun, the planets, and the great gravity well around whose edges we swirled. Watching the movement, tracing through it in my mind, imagining the scale, was mind-boggling. And I returned to Earth once again and noticed the fading light in the sky and thought about the scale of me, little old human me, sitting in a chair on a planet as big and yet as small and as gloriously beautiful as this Mother Earth. I was moving in her lap. I was moving from west to east as she did her pirouette for the sun. I was being carried from west to east, counterclockwise if viewed from the North Pole. Have you ever done that? Sat in a chair and imagined that you're on a conveyance the size of a planet that is rolling you gently from west to east, we move. The sun appears to move from east to west. We are actually moving from west to east. So what does that mean? I took to exploring the physics and the impact of the physics on my experience. When the sun rises in the east, we're seeing just the first touch of the sun. We think of it as bringing light to the sky. But all this time, the sun's been baking half the planet. The half that's to the east of us. There's a whole hemisphere of daylight already there as the sun rises for us. I'm used to thinking of that brightening of the sky as a thing that happens here. But the reality is, there's a whole sky already lit. And when the sun rises for me, I'm a Johnny-come-lately to a day that's already in full swing somewhere else. Similarly, when the sun sets for me, I'm leaving a party. But that party is not ending. It's not winding down. No, not at all. There's, there's half a planet that's lit up like a Christmas tree, carrying on and doing its thing. I watch the sunset and think, oh, there goes the sun. But it's not like that at all. It's really me going. I'm leaving the party. 
And weirdly, as the sun sets and my sky gets dark, there's still a whole hemisphere basking in the light. It's not over. My part in it is over. So whatever it is that's happening, it's been happening to the east of me, and it's still happening to the west of me. A whole hemisphere's worth of happening is going on while I'm either just catching up to the action or leaving the party. Thinking about it that way created a huge shift in my awareness. East. East is full of introductions to energies that are already active and in full swing. I'm the newcomer when I look east. West. West is where the party will go on without me. It's common to look east as the sun is rising and west as the sun is setting. But perhaps an interesting alternative is to look west when the sun is rising, realizing in that moment you are first up to bat. You are the one experiencing the new moment first before those forms and beings that reside west of you. You are in the place of the experienced one, capable of making introductions. And when the sun is setting, Perhaps look east and sense what those who have just left the party before you are up to. Where's their after-party? How are they settling in to the night? I wondered, too, about the phrase attributed to Horace Greeley. His admonition, Go west, young man, go west. The full quote is actually, Go west, young man, go west and grow up with the country. While that might have had a specific meaning back in the mid-19th century, I wondered about the draw of the West, the draw of looking westward. What happens when I look west? Well, for us humans, we experience our three dimensions with relative equanimity. Up, down, left, right, forward, back. We can turn around, traverse them at will. We can go anywhere we please but we live with an awareness of a fourth dimension, time. We're not so adept at moving so dexterously through time. We can only go forward. And the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, and we can't make time go backwards. So this motion of the sun across the sky is indelibly connected to our perception of the passage of time. It's like an inexorable marker a clock that tells us that what was cannot be visited again. We can't go back. So what is east and what is west in this quasi-metaphor, this dimensional translator? I've always thought of west as the future. Looking west, I dream of adventures and frontier and expansion. It's part of my cultural inheritance, I suppose, but it's also the idea that it it's still light there. There's still opportunity there. The party is still happening there. The light is there. Land awaiting discovery is there. People I haven't met yet are somehow younger there. It feels, by reflex, like the future. But after communing with the directions, and in particular lingering in conversation with the West, I'm discovering a different, deeper truth. I look west and what I'm actually feeling is a kind of desperate pining for my youth, 
and that includes my past. In a way, it's opportunities for adventures that I've already known. Going west seems like an attempt to stop the clock, or at least slow it down, so that I can stay at the party just a little longer, hang with the younger crowd, be part of what's happening. The happening I already know about and understand. Yes, it's evolving, but looking at it from the West, I'm the elder in the scene, and I want to stay young. I yearn for the sun as it passes me by, as I leave the daylight stage. Looking West, I'm looking into the past. Cosmically, spatially, I've already been there. And I want to go back. It turns my perception on its head. Contemplating time can do that to a person. But of course, you can't go back. You can only go forward. The unknown, where others have more experience and perhaps more secure positions and more power and more strength because they've already been there. They're in it already. Looking east, it's quite a bit harder, scarier, more humbling. I think I'll save that communion for another time. We'll be right back. At Firefly Willows L-I-V-E, we're working hard to be your trusted source for fun, enlightening, and heart-centered information and community. And we're passionate about the art of transformative media, the new leading edge of communication in our highly connected, media-rich world. If you're passionate about facilitating change and you have gifts or ideas you'd like to share, Come join us, host a show, or be a guest, or connect us to an amazing speaker or teacher whose message is too good to miss. There's always room for courageous, knowledgeable changemakers, inspired artists, and new ideas. Let us know you're interested. Send an email to info at fireflywillows.com. We're Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E, helping you find and shine your inner light. Well, that's our show. I hope you enjoyed it. May your 2015 be healthy, prosperous, and filled with love, light, and laughter. Take a look around. Enjoy where you are. Feel deeply inside yourself. Explore what's there. Never stop choosing. Never stop changing. Keep exploring the terrain and saying yes to what is happening right now. Until next time. Thank you for joining us. This program was brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. We hope you enjoyed the show. This is Deb Carousella. Please join us next time on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E for our live on-air call-in show. Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m.